0: HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com/hraa to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF.
1: Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right. I caught me drinking.
2: Welcome, Charlie. to it. A- and what a Friday! Welcome to this Friday.
1: That's <laughs> yes, right, it's a Friday. Welcome. Not to our today. favorite everybody Friday, but better today? than
3: last Friday, am I right? Yeah, better
1: than last Friday. Adam, you drinking a la Croix? What's going on, buddy?
3: Yeah, I have to officiate at a swim meet again tonight, so they don't like it when I show up half cut.
2: <laughs> <laughs> they prefer you fully cut. <laughs> That's
3: right. Yeah, exactly. Either not cut or all the way.
2: Yeah, what's everybody? What's everybody else drinking? I'm I'm having it, it's a Scotch kind of Friday, so I needed something but a little
4: <clears throat> hammer to it for yeah. me. But yeah, I, mean, I I have a 2018 Napa Cab. Uh, I apologize wholeheartedly to the Market Huddle, <laughs> the Market Huddle team, Lena, and everybody. I'm supposed to be drinking rosé. We ran out of rosé, so I'm on to my 2018 Napa Cab. Don't fix what ain't broke. You you, you drank all <laughs> the rosé. I'm drinking this today. straight out of the bottle, <laughs> like, straight
1: out. <up. laughs> just. <laughs>
4: Anybody have a straw
3: a beer too? Show I him know. your IV, Rodrigo. That's right. <laughs> Show them the drip, bro.
2: All right. So, thanks, hey, Great to have you on, uh, Darius. And uh, just a, as a as a uh, a reminder for everybody watching today, that this is for education and uh, information purposes. It's not investment advice. You, you, if you're getting investment advice on YouTube from four dudes on Friday afternoon uh, having a drink, then you know. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's the wisdom, but maybe not. But I leave that to to everyone to make their own investment decisions. But we do have with us uh, joining us today Darius Dale from Forty Two Macro, and um, they're they're over there democratizing the world of financial information for uh, broader audiences and doing a hell of a job at that. And uh, so Darius is going to join us today. I think in what is an opportune time to be chatting because there's a lot of shifts going on and the regimes going on and, and. there's impact, impacts for inflation and growth that are having the fall on effects of the asset price changes and a lot of this is quite structural and predictable so it's it's very interesting and and really going to enjoy having Darius on to uh to chat with us about all these things and just a slight change of the format we're going we're going to share some insights of what we have observed over the last week as well to start the show off as, as well so adam maybe I'll kick it over to you to
3: Sure. Yeah. And and um looking forward to people's comments and questions as well as we go through this. So please chime in and engage. Um, and Darius, looking forward to your thoughts on what we've seen over the last week or so. I know we were chatting before the show mm-hmm. and there seems to be at least um, a growing consensus that we may be in some kind of regime change here. Um, we, we are seeing a variety of signs. One thing that I've really picked up on over the last two or three weeks is we are in one of the most reflexive markets that I've ever seen in my career going back over uh, 20 years where you've got sort of a confluence of extreme um, retail investor speculation and participation in the markets. I mean, just looking at the volume of odd lot call premiums, for example, um, the amount of, gamma in the market on some of the the highest priced names, thinking sort of the Teslas of this world. Um, And at the same time, you've got a a, a Fed president that's been reconfirmed or Fed chair rather that's been reconfirmed. Um, And I think it is often the case that when we have a new confirmation or a new Fed chair, they often like to come out of the gate uh, signaling that they're not going to be the same as the you know the previous chair and or you know that they have their eye on the ball and so I, I you know it seems like there was a dramatic shift in tenor in the market really since the um, the Powell reappointment um, so I, I think that's an important thing to notice we've had some other really interesting market, Oriented signals like um, what's going on in the Euro dollar market. I know um, the guys over at Alhambra have been remarking on the fact that we've had an inversion further out in the Euro dollar curve, which has often indicated a um, a, a risk towards the deflationary camp. And so, you know, is that complicating views on the trajectory that the Fed might take? And, you know, I know a, a large group of macro commentators have been calling for this dynamic where we may get this sort of huge energy-led uptick in, um, in inflation expectations. And that may then cause a um, reaction from the Biden administration and some governments They've been sort of signaling that they won't let this inflation get out of control or they won't allow it to dent the economy and their willingness to add to fiscal stimulus here. And so you've got this sort of, you know, inflation shock may actually lead to an exacerbation of the same dynamics that have led to this inflation shock. And at the same time, you've got signals that um, certainly the bond market and and the euro dollar market are positioning for deflation. So, you know, I think what we're really observing is a market that is right for inflation volatility, right? And so I don't think investors necessarily want to be um, concentratedly positioned towards the inflation camp or towards the disinflationary camp. I think you want to be positioned for inflation volatility, and there's a different type of trading dynamic that lends itself to that, to that view. Um, so maybe I'll stop there, and maybe you guys can react to that. And then I want to sh- share a couple of charts that we thought were really interesting from last
1: week. Yeah, I think we've been talking about inflation volatility quite a bit, right? Um, Everybody, I'm particularly sensitive to the inflation discussion because of my formative years in Peru. A lot of people think they understand inflation, but they don't. I mean, inflation is such a broad uh, series of events that don't happen all at once. You know, Canadians especially love to talk about inflation protection as their gold position. Right, it may work. Gold may be there, and it will be there in certain ways. But depending, if we're looking at quarter to quarter, the different the ways inflation manifests in different asset classes and different commodity complexes is wide and varied. Right, gold has been flatlining this whole year. You had energies going up. You had uh, you know grains at times. You know we're short the grains at times. We're long the grains. Like recently, now we're back to being short energies after what happened last Friday. And so, what? When people ask me, is it going to be you know, per- persistent and per- pervasive over the next decade, or is it going to be uh, a transitory inflation? The answer is yes. The answer is that inflation decades are what you said, Adam. It's a, a decade of inflation volatility, thrusts upwards of massive volatility spikes with deflationary busts and another round of inflation, deflationary busts. And from point to point, like decade of the 70s. You know, energies, were, not energies, uh, commodities generally were up 800% for the decade. So you you, you use this concept of like, look, energies are great, not energy, commodities are great for the, to hedge that decade. The problem is the average investor, the average advisor, the average allocator will be fired or, or just have weak hands in those moments of downfall. So I think inflation, unlike growth, requires a much, a bit of a Midas touch. You need to be active in order to protect and and manage that volatility of inflation rather than just thinking a single bat passive position in your portfolio is going to do it.
2: Are, are we also in a, in a place where the put the sort of fed put is uh, previously was all news was good news. If it was weak, we were going to get liquidity. If it was strong, we were going to get liquidity. And it feels like now that, those players are backed into certain corners, both somewhat politically, as well as fiscally, as well as monetarily, where now it's starting to be like, it's all bad news. The economy is really strong. Oh, we're going to taper more. Uh, We need to raise rates more. So, So you'll get news that typically may have been good news in previous types of cycles, which is now potentially has some other implications to be sort of negative news. And so you can get this cycle where the news is just, it it doesn't matter what it is, it's all kind of temperate and creating that volatility you're talking about.
4: Yeah. I would add uh, just the news today, in our opinion, certainly added to a lot of that volatility. Uh, If you look at the job support, obviously the headline number was a a pretty soft figure, but the second you take a step back or step through the headline numbers and into the data, uh, as we tend to do is it's, you know, it's a pretty hawkish report. I mean, we saw some pretty broad based improvement with respect to uh, unemployment rates of ethnic cohorts that have been prior previously left behind, namely African-Americans and Hispanics. Uh, we saw a massive improvement in unemployment rates or in, in employment uh, for folks who you know don't have a high school diploma or folks who just barely graduated high school. And so in terms of the feds maximum inclusive employment mandate, This jobs report took it a major step forward, you know, beyond the or, you know, underneath the headline figures. And I think that does put the Fed on a preset course to accelerating the taper uh, on the 15th of this month and ultimately getting themselves into a place where they can uh, hike interest rates um, in the first half of next year, likely at the June meeting. They'll probably get another rate hike um, at the September meeting. Um, And the reality is that the fact that that's we're sort of on, I think markets are pushing us towards a preset course for that, if only because the Fed has been so lagged with respect to the deal curve. It's been behind the curve for quite a while now. As a function of that, you know, you kind of have a scenario in asset markets where, you know, the Fed is going to be automatically tightening for another, for, you know, for tightening into a slowdown for an extended period of time. And that is a very different market environment than the one we just exited, um, or the one we're, you know, either currently in or certainly in the process of exiting. So I think that does uh, require... Would
1: that jobs report come out?
4: Yeah, this jobs morning. report. Oh, this morning at 8.30, the, the November jobs report. Yeah. All right. And
1: in terms of news, what do you think was a catalyst for last Thursday, Thursday, Friday?
4: Oh, last Friday. Oh, I do believe yeah. I do believe Omicron was an issue. But I mean, it, it's it's you no know, All these dynamics, it's it's you don't necessarily need the catalyst, in my opinion. You need to understand how asset markets are pricing it in in regime terms. And, and what happened, you know, going into the beginning of last week prior to last Friday Smackdown is that, you know, we sort of concluded the end of the mini reflation trade. Uh, that we saw basically from mid September through 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 that time period and we transitioned into something that looked more like stagflation or inflation as we call it at 42 macro and so that was confirming the markets are pricing in a negative growth dynamic relative to to the prior to the prior regime. Well fast forward to this week what what's happening is now we're starting to price in a negative inflation dynamic as well and historically whenever you had both growth and inflation impulses uh, are negative in the economy or the market's pricing that in that's obviously something that catalyzes more volatility more drawdowns in risk assets and a lot more sort of uh investors running for cash
3: yeah i mean that's a i definitely want to zero in on the volatility and risk assets because i'm not sure that people who are mostly focused on equities understand just how large some of the moves were across many markets um last friday and then again on tuesday this week um, like if you're if you're only looking at the S&P, I think there's a lot, A, that went on under the surface for the S&P. Obviously, the equal weight index, the, the Russell, were down in the sort of 4% range. So obviously, a, a, a substantial move there. A lot of European markets also had major moves, thinking the IBEX, et cetera. So I just wanted to sort of show um, a chart that puts some of these moves in, pers- in perspective. Um, so let me just go ahead on that. You let me know when you can see my screen
0: Mm -hmm.
3: you can yeah 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 so this is from last friday so you know a week from today and all i did was um i analyzed the size of the loss in terms of the the empirical distribution in other words all of the other returns that we've observed throughout the entire history since inception across 85 different futures markets And I zeroed in on the ones that had the most extreme moves. And you can see that, for example, the crude contract, um, Brent, in fact, the entire energy complex experienced a downside move that exceeded what we have seen historically in all but about 20 out of every 10,000 trading days, right? So, I mean, that's a pretty substantial VAR shock. Um, And a lot of systematic funds especially were um, relatively highly weighted in the crude complex because it has been such a strongly trending market. It has been symbolic of this stagflationary regime. Um, and it was a bit of a market darling. It had done very, very well. Strong trend um, across a, a wide variety of tenors. So a pretty it, the other thing to notice was that the volatility um, observed in those markets coming into last Friday was such that the move was even more extreme when you adjust it for the volatility estimates. right? So in this plot, all we've done is scaled Friday's move as a multiple of the expected volatility of those markets. And again, this is the number of occasions per 10,000 trading days that we might expect to see a move of that magnitude in a wide variety of markets. You can see that on a vol adjusted basis, um, a much wider variety of markets experienced quite a substantial um, move, right? So worse than we might expect in all but 20 days out of 10,000, right? So for the so, listeners
1: out there, when I'm, we're looking at a bunch of graphs with a number on top across these markets, and I'm looking at, I would just say an average here, a median number of like <clears throat> maybe five days for every 10,000 trading days, we've seen moves like this across Fifteen different, fifteen to twenty different contracts or markets. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah so this is what was going on under the surface, right? Um, that you didn't see if you were primarily focused on, you know, a U.S. balance portfolio or or the S and P or the Nasdaq. Um, and then the twenty, the thirtieth, which was just past Tuesday, was actually another really interesting day, but it it impacted even more esoteric markets, right? So. Um, Just looking at Tuesday, the grains complex and some of the softs also had a really tough day. So, you know, bean oil, mill wheat, cotton, palm oil, wheat, canola, um, all experienced an extremely negative day. You know, the grain complex was at or very near an all-time high. The vol was relatively low. Um, And yet, you know, we can sort of um, hypothesize that some of the de-risking that some of the systematic funds were um, undergoing as a function of the var shock that they'd experienced on Friday, um, then sort of migrated over into some of the other complexes where there was fairly heavy concentration. We we know by observation the grain sector was one of those, and um, as a as a result we saw another really rough day for that complex. And again, on a risk adjusted basis, we we see the same sort of thing in the grain complex. Just a really really tough day um so you know i think it's really illustrative to think about markets other than the s&p in terms of you know what's going on under the surface and the type of risk that um can manifest for especially for sort of alternative strategies
1: and it just so happens that it's ca- it came at a time like everything that darius spoke about is it was clearly building up toward that right but what was interesting in terms of news is that we were talking about this on thursday remember adam you're like uh oh, this Omicron thing is is coming in hot. Yeah, I wonder how this is going to affect the markets given the weaknesses we're already seeing, you know, you were talking about the deflation trade, like you were you were very much into like we need to we need to, you know, we're going to see how what how it's going to turn out. And uh, certainly Omicron, um, I thought it was that the guardians of the narrative were all mm-hmm. eating turkey dinner on Friday, right? I was looking at that. I remember that that's, uh, Slack exchange. I was like, this is nonsense. Like, this is one of 20 variants. What are they talking about? Like, it, it, there's no data to back anything that the UK was doing. Whatever, it, it's probably not going to be a big deal. But when you don't have the guardians at the gate, right? When you have people, rational people that know about this taking the other side, and you have all these dynamics in the background, and you're in one of the worst, um, the least liquid days in the year. It just created this armageddon right like it it was it was astounding to see how you never know where what narrative is going to create this catalyst
2: i think it's i think it's just one one last point i want because i I think this is going to dovetail well with with your concepts darius and and 42 macros thinking you know we have those two dynamics of inflation and growth that create those sort of four quadrants Right. What, was, what was heartening to some degree is if you were diversified and, and prioritized some preparation rather than prediction, our risk parity mandates were relatively unscathed through all yeah. of this, mm-hmm. because you've got risk balances across the different domains that we're talking about, and some of them benefited from the regime shift and some of them were hurt. And so that, that's, a, that's for us always a great starting place and then obviously the layer on top of that is to think about okay prediction and how do we inform that via you know some of the quantitative models you've got Darius that help people slant and skew the portfolio to these different areas we wouldn't advise that anyone takes you know 100% off the table in any area but but certainly slanting and tilting the portfolio makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. um, but you know you leave that to the individual investor to, to do but thinking about it in in your quads concepts and all that sort of stuff how did how did you th- see things roll out
1: Maybe do intro uh, forty two macro before yeah. you get into it and what you do, and then go forward and answer my question.
4: Yeah, absolutely. It may help to uh, sort of explain the uh, the grid concept, if you will. So let me share my screen, if you uh, don't mind. Um, yeah. So it, it's it's it, so I'll I'll take a step back and and kind of address uh, something Rodrigo said earlier about the, kind of the the guardians at the gate being missing. And I, I do believe that was certainly a factor. Uh, can you guys see my slides? Yeah, you can see it. Uh, yep. So I do believe that was certainly a factor, but I also think it's 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 fundamental as well. I mean, you think about, you know, what we learned from um, my man, Andrew Lowe up there, and uh, I think it's MIT, you know, he taught us that, you know, m- markets are this dynamic, you know, nonlinear ecosystem. You know, it could have been Omicron, it could have been a scroll getting hit by a bus, it could have been Powell saying the wrong thing at the Senate Testimonies past week. And the reality is, we're heading into a sea of D's and what those D's mean, or those D's implies that the whole global economy is going to be experiencing negative impulses on growth and inflation for an extended period of time, uh, starting in roughly Q1 of, of next year for the most part. And so when you look at something in terms of how our market regime now casting process absorbs that information or, or, or really, you know, what to, what's what it's doing is, is actually, you know, sort of uh, asking, know, every market in the world, all the major markets in the world across asset classes, hey, what's happening with your price and volatility signals? And, you know, in the context of summarizing rising, all that stuff, we're we're effectively now casting what regime the market is in based on all those liquid asset markets. And what we've seen is really since the beginning of November, we've seen a massive move higher in both inflation and deflation. Inflation, because that's the highest probability macro regime right now, we're currently in the month of December. A lot of economies are in inflation, which is what most folks would call stagflation. That's where growth is decelerating. Inflation is accelerating. But the reality is, if you look closely back at this chart, deflation is not far behind. Can you, can so, you just
1: stop at this chart for one second, Darius? So I'm not mm-hmm. sure I fully comprehend what's going on here. Maybe walk me through what I'm supposed to be seeing here.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a three-step process or a two-step process. So uh, each of these markets in this, in this table here, uh, we're, we're scoring through the lens of what we call our volatility adjusted momentum signal. And you know, so if it's green, it's got a check mark. That's bullish. Red's bearish. Orange is the uh, is neutral. And so if something's bullish in this table, for instance, uh, or something's you know, let's use the first signal, the M- MESA. So that's the MSCI Emerging Market Index. That's got a red X. That's bearish. Historically, based on the back test, if you look at how we back tested asset markets through the context of those regimes, you know, if the MSCI Emerging Market Index is bearish. That means I, both inflation and deflation are getting a point from that that market. And we're iterating that process all the way across the table, obviously, you know, at every, you know, interval and in every trading day in the market. So we have a time series effectively of, okay, which regimes the market pricing in according to how the asset markets have historically behaved in each regime. And right now we went from a scenario where inflation a few weeks ago, you know, was up there around 20, uh, sort of had a, a lower high relative to where it peaked out in June at around 20. And it was the dominant regime, as you can see um, at the top of this chart. But since then... We've seen the number of markets that are either breaking down with red axis or just breaking to neutral from bullish previously, you know, that those signals don't contribute. So you're effectively taking away uh, signals from inflation and either giving them to nobody or giving them to deflation and inflation. And so that's what's happened in the last few weeks, which is asset markets themselves are now concerned that we're transitioning into what we always thought they would transition to all along, which is having a price in a very different economic environment than the one we just left. You know, this is a very positive economic environment. And the fact that we were getting record fiscal stimulus and record monetary easing associated with that very positive economic environment, the R stand for reflation. That's where growth and inflation are trending. And that was from so, July
1: 2020 to yeah. basically, uh, basically October 2021.
4: Yeah. yeah. So we, the, 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 I think that's the market saying, hey, we're done pricing in all the good stuff. We're now tra- starting to price in the bad stuff. And what degree to which the market's pricing the bad stuff, in our opinion, is a function of monetary policy um, that, 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 you know, the kind of expected path of monetary policy, which in our opinion is, is kind of getting scary. I mean, so we're seeing, you know, effect that. So this, this chart here shows the Euro dollar futures curve. Um, 2022 is the blue line. 2020 is the Euro dollar calendar spread. Rather red line is the 2023 black line is 2024. And the, and the the five year 30 year treasury yield curves is, is the pink line. We're still hodling at around three rate hikes into 2022 and a couple more, you know, two to three more in 2023. But what's happened is the market has said effectively, Hey, look, you're, you're going to tighten us into a recession as a function of that. And that's so the bond, the yield curve is pancaking and, and kind of the last thing I'll end on on in on this, you know, we held in with the tens two spread. We knew all the other yield curves are flattening tens, thirties, fives, thirties, you know, things like that. But the tens twos were holding in because we had this positive growth dynamic, um, associated with, you know, coming out of Delta and, you know, you know there's positive fiscal, for a moment there was positive tailwinds with respect to fiscal policy as well. But a lot of that stuff has kind of gone awry in the last few weeks. And now you're seeing this collapse in the 10-2 spread to kind of catch down to where the rest of the yield curves are coming in. To me, that's that's new. You know, this breakdown in the 30-year Treasury is new. It's kind of the, the fact that the 10-year didn't hold 140 uh, where it held um, in, in kind of early November is new. And so to me, that newness of it all is something that we need to be paying attention to. Um, lastly, going back to the original slide, which is this. Got
2: it. And then what, what are the implications then for, for bonds in sort of this deflationary uh, outlook, but also with a, sort of a, a rising rates uh, backdrop? Like, What wins in that? Yeah, yeah, they're flat, <laughs> I, think you're Adam. I think you're muted, Adam.
3: Yeah. Pr- pricing and inflation and pricing and deflation seems like a really interesting story. Like how often do we do we see that historically? And, and what does that market environment typically look like in terms of, of um, where stocks and bonds go?
4: Yeah. So it's it's the, the, the difference between inflation and deflation is not much in terms of um, asset market performance. Like if you look at, uh, so we back tested everything to the lens those grid regimes. And the reality is when you, you know, you're on the right side of the chart, that means growth's decelerating on the left side of the chart. That means growth's accelerating. And you sort of look at like what happens in, you know, equity style factor terms. It's pretty much the same, same thing with fixed income. The only thing you kind of, the only big pivots in fixed income is like, okay, I'm going to be long, um, you know, something like MBS as opposed to tips, or I'm going to be long, you know, so I can actually get long the short end of the curve as opposed to IG credit or something like that. And so, you know, the reality is, you know, so inflation, you know, a lot of folks, a lot of folks associate, you know, it's kind of stagflation with, OK, I got to go buy every commodity inside or I got to go buy this. But there's a there's a reality that, to it that you typically only get paid in energy and food when you're in a growth slowing environment and inflation accelerating. This is the inflation environment that gets you paid in everything, commodities, everything crypto, you know, every inflation trade or inflation narrative that you want to put out there when you cross this Rubicon of growth. Things start to get weird, and and the the reason they get weird is because you're you're slowing, and the the slowdown of growth, you know, sort of, you know, reduces investors' willingness to take risk, uh, reduces businesses' willingness to take risk, and obviously, it creates a a much more higher volatility environment. If you look at something like um, our back test for S and P, for example, you you look at the the volatility is around eleven or twelve when you're in goldilocks and inflation, but you're somewhere between fifteen to twenty on average when you're in inflation and deflation, and that's pretty consistent across all risk assets.
2: I imagine if you, if you added the, the, the balanced portfolio, sort of the 60-40 is the predominant way that investors would view that it, it it's not much better. The, 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 does the correlation between sort of the government bonds and equities rise a little bit in that scenario or, or not? Yeah, the inverse
4: correlation tends to pick up. Um, whenever you have growth slowing. Um, so that that is, yeah, that, that typically is what, I mean, that's obviously what's happened in the last you know week or so, last week, week over week. Mm-hmm. I mean, bonds have had a massive move higher um, as a function of of these dynamics in our opinion changing. I mean, it's all reflexive, right? Bonds having a massive move higher is contributing to the now cast for inflation and deflation rising. And the only reason that inflation and deflation are, are, are you know, they're, they're all rising as a function of risk assets selling off, but the fact that you still have some latent bullish signals in commodity space um, are keeping inflation well bid for now as a, as a market regime. But, you know, certainly if we continue down this path, that'll be very, uh, that, that'll end pretty quickly.
3: How often do you measure it? Every day. How often do yeah. you update? Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. have you not observed a meaningful shift in some of those inflation dynamics over the last, I mean, even over the last week?
4: Yeah, Certainly absolutely. in the energy sector. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And crude oils uh, bearish uh, from our, uh, from the perspective of our auto already. Uh, let me go back to the table. Just I'm not speaking out of turn, but uh, so yeah, we got what broke down. So crude oil broke down, uh, c- copper broke down, silver broke down, nat gas broke to neutral. Um, uh, where were we at? Yeah, so yeah, you had a lot of breakdowns this week. Obviously, MSCI emerging market index breakdown. But you had a lot of stuff break down to, to neutral already, and so it's you know it's it, we're we're on a path towards going to deflation. That's typically what happens, right? Like if you look at this chart, it's it it's very much akin to the business cycle. Like you bottom here in a recession then you grow while inflation is still excel- decelerating you know that's kind of the early cycle phase of the recovery Then you go into the you know early to mid cycle phase of the recovery you got inflation picking up now there's a little bit more pricing power in the economy and then overly you start to overheat that's where growth's decelerating late cycle and inflation still accelerating and then boom you have your recession right that's that's kind of like th- th- that's th- th- this this is designed to help investors manage risk on a kind of three to six to nine month forward basis but the reality is it very much rhymes with how the business cycle itself works in rate of change terms
1: yeah you got the cyclical changes what you just described there's also a secular uh, regime that tends to be much much longer right but yeah, you're, yeah. you're dealing in the cyclical so how what type of visibility do you give your your clients uh, are you predicting what's going to happen over the next 12 months six months two months one week yeah 12 months
4: yeah, twelve months. So uh, we, we're, we're our forecasts are live and rolling at every interval. Um, so we, we, we maintain uh, nowcast and 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 forecast models for for both growth and inflation for every economy. Going back to that table on slide five, so it's all the same, you know, kind of metric processes, but obviously different data sets for the different economy. So we do have at any, every interval, we have a twelve month forward view on what the modal outcome is from a regime perspective. Now that's not to say that every you know, every modal outcome dot in this, you know, in this first row of the table is as strong of a signal as, you know, as the others. You know, for example, when you're in reflation from July uh, all the way through kind of from July to July, these are very strong reflation signals. Your distance from the origin was very great. And you, as you can see, the conditional probability of being in reflation throughout the, that time period was very high, um, as a, again, as a function of the distance from that from the origin. Now you're kind of in this, you know, hodgepodge of, you know, this, you know starting in September of this year, really all the way through kind of the end of this year you know the, the distance from the origin for some of these dots is just not that far and so the market in my opinion going back to uh, the market regime now casting process like it, this is why i draw the dotted line it's like the market has had a tough time figuring out what regime to price in because the economy itself has had a tough time of declaring the regime if you know what i mean of actually declaring the regime but we, we think as we go further into 2022 as a function of our growth forecast you know this is pretty consistent deceleration and growth consistent deceleration and inflation the further we go into 2022 the more likely it is the market can figure out what the price is and maybe that process has already started
3: so how do you trade with a 12-month forecast like or how do you recommend um investors manifest these views in portfolios
4: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so what we're trying to do is is orient our portfolio construction in accordance with the next three to six months on on a um uh, from a conditional probability perspective so uh, so right now, we, you know, mostly the next three months, because what we found, I mean, I've been doing this for over a dozen years now. And and anecdotally, the asset markets tend to start to price in the new regime somewhere between one to three months. Not 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 further. Um, uh, Jim Leitner, who runs Falcon Head, uh, I forget the Falcon something, but he wrote he wrote he was in the, um, Inside the House of Money. This is back in 08, a book in 08. And he was talking about regime segmentation process and effectively how. You don't get paid to be front run the regime. You typically want to be uh, you want to be kind of within the first you know first couple months of the regime, and so that's you know understanding that learning, understanding just kind of watching this process play out, officer, but uh, anecdotally over the you know lat- long period of time. That's
1: an interesting concept. So just so yeah. that I understand it, it's you don't get paid for being too early.
4: Right? Yeah, of course. This is, this is <laughs> kind
1: of like, you know, how many people before 08 were like in 2005, I was hearing totally. calls for the real estate the housing market collapse. I mean, most of the people in the big short were big shorting years before they should have. Totally. They he came ostracized, bit like lost their families, lost their like, uh, their well, I mean, thank God.
4: I mean, my former boss got fired for shorting too big and I wouldn't have had a job had he not gotten fired. So knock on wood, that was a good thing. Miller
1: <laughs> shorting too early. Like it's an interesting concept. So you, you're better off actually taking the first hit, hit along with everybody else. Yeah, you're not so going to get fired if you're taking the first hit with everybody else. You just, from then, don't be paralyzed. Start is, making some moves.
4: Exactly. Yeah, like so that. just wait for the market to tell you, hey, we're starting to price it in. That's what this whole process is about. Mm. I know based on the you know the, the, the econometric side that this is easy or easy enough for someone who's been doing it for as long as that. The hard part is you know this variable kind of, dynamic with which the market starts to price it all in the market can start pricing in like, like coincidentally, like Q4 of 18, when we transitioned to deflation then and the market effectively was like on the day, on the screws, or it could kind of start to price it in, you know, ahead of time, you know, this is like, you know, you look at January of 2020, you know, a couple months ahead of time before we actually observed and experienced the deflation. Um, so the the reality is you kind of want to live in this next three to, three to six month view, but really the three month view. And so our portfolio construction I'll give you guys a, a quick glance at it because I don't want. Uh, we've got to keep our ETF exposures out of the public view, just for you know respect of our paying subscribers. They're paying for that, right. that information. But the portfolio construction, the bets we're taking in the portfolio construction from a pie chart allocation perspective, will represent the the grit regimes, the size of the grit regimes in this in this in this in this uh, probability table.
1: And, and so and right that- now, as
4: you might imagine, inflation had been the largest one, but we actually just sold make some sales today. So we're a little bit more balanced with de- the with deflation down cash. So,
1: so I'm not clear do. as to what you recommend, like what uh, instruments you recommend be used. Yeah, so no, no, us? yeah, so- Mainly equities, just- No, no, everything.
4: Yeah, so so we we've, we back tested everything through the lens of those grid regime processes, through the lens of the deltas, the impulses and growth and inflation, what policy rate's doing, what the balance sheet's doing, what the fiscal policy is doing, what the rest of the world's doing, and we blend it all together the lens of volatility or expected returns, percent positive ratios, volatility and covariance. So volatility and covariance are on the x-axis here, percent positive ratio ratios and annualized expected returns on the y-axis. And what we're trying to do is help investors visualize according to our forecasts of what's happening over the next, you know, three to six months in in in, in the econometric side of things, visualize the kind of exposures they should be long and short. So if you draw like a slope of one here you obviously this is those would be the longs these would be the shorts high risk low reward high you know low risk high reward and so we do this across every asset class u.s equities global equities commodities fixed income foreign exchange and then we ultimately help investors you know kind of shrink that whole discussion into okay these are the types of exposures i should be picking from on the long side um to to get into to fit myself into one of those pies right and so that that's my uh, that's how the whole process works it's understanding The conditional probability over the next three to six months of realizing something in the economy, allowing the market to say, hey, it's actually starting to price that in and then making sure the bets are making in our portfolio construction correspond to the size of the pies or the size of the probabilities uh, in that in that distribution.
2: I think that's that's a really important point to emphasize in that you've got a pie there and it's unlikely that you're going to take any one of those quartiles to zero. Yeah. You're still going based on the conditional probability or 100,
3: presumably, too.
2: Correct. Yeah, exactly. And so, based on the probabilities you're seeing, you're weighting the allocations to those various regimes uh, based on those probabilities because you would never have a zero or 100
4: probability Mm -hmm. in any case. Yeah. And so, right now, Goldilocks is a 10% probability uh, over the next three months in terms of realizing that economically. I took it down to zero That's to be so just I, I just don't just experience there's a threshold it the by which you just go to yeah, zero. There's, human, there's a human, there's a subjective element to it as well. Uh, I, it, it, the subjective element is certainly less than a quarter of the whole process, but it is it is a function. There is a subjective element to it. I mean, okay. the pivot we made in early November to start taking down our exposure to pure inflation exposure, we saw a lot of commodity exposures. We were long commodities coming into November big time. And we sold a lot of that stuff at the beginning, of, or uh, November 11th, saying, "Hey, look, I've, I'm starting to see the market transition as something that's not positive. Like we're we're coming out of reflation. It might be inflation first, but ultimately we're going to be going to deflation. If you go back to that probability table, and I don't like these signals, I got to get rid of all this stuff. So I effectively use my own intuition and and kind of my own expectations to front run." the pricing in of that. And knock on wood, that was obviously a really good call because a lot of those markets have crashed in the last few weeks. That's an
1: interesting concept that we often talk about internally as systematic managers, Darius. Um, You know, how do you weigh the... the, What you do as a quantitative investor is you try to minimize your own behavioral flaws. Mm-hmm. and maximize the understanding of the the, the uh, structural inefficiencies that created your models that you believe are going to exist long-term mm-hmm. versus the intuition that you create and garner over decades of being in the market, yeah, right? Totally. That blind spot that a lot of these, you know, like you just, there's two or three things that have happened. I kind of know that my intuition tells me this. I, I've seen this enough. Mm-hmm. And you, you are you know it's an interesting thing because you are both quantitative but you will unapologetically nudge something using your intuition have you thought about that in any deep way where you can articulate it and kind of you know really hone in on when and why or is you just are you just kind of playing the game and your intuition kind of kicks in like where are you at with articulating that i'd say
4: five years ago i was just playing the game um, as I've gotten more experience and, and, and built out the process better and more robustly, I have ancillary tools that give me quantitative signals that allow me to uh, essentially front run the main line components of the process. I said, so for example, uh, you know, taking back to the deck, just one slide I'll share with you on that in that regard. Um, you know, so when we were making those pivots in in um, in, in early in early November, This dispersion table, one thing we track is is month-on-month sharp ratio dispersion across 50 U.S. equity sectors and style factors. Uh, The reason we look at the upper quintile relative to the lower quintile, what we're trying to find is the composition of the upper quintile and lower quintile, specifically if it's pro-cyclical or defensive. And the reason we do that on a daily basis is to identify, hey, what side of the table is the market make wrong? Because what typically happens, and Stan Druckenmiller taught us all this going back to the 70s and 80s, like the style factor leadership in the stock market is the world's best predictor, you know, it's the world's best predictor of what's happening uh, on a go forward basis. Economically, it's the world's best predictor of of future changes in monetary and fiscal policy. And so, you know, understanding, having this burn into like the back of my brain, like, okay, what, what leads, what lags in a pro growth or negative growth regime, when you start to see this table, so this table got very defensive in June, like the the upper quintile was dominated by things like low beta mega cap growth, et cetera, et cetera. That was kind of the end of that. That was in wave. June you said? It? Yeah, that was the end of that first inflation wave going back to slide nine, like this peak, the peak of that inflation wave came and then it crashed and uh, because sector and style factor leadership in the equity market sort of front ran that saying, hey, look, we're done pricing in pure inflation for now. And it got very, it got very defensive. It got very pro cyclical again in mid September. And that was mm-hmm. one of the things we used to say, hey, like, look, the market is not currently pricing in inflation from a dominant market regime perspective. But this dispersion table is telling me that it's going to be at some point in the next few weeks. And the converse is true in early November. After having been pro cyclical from basically mid-September all the way through early November, it started to get defensive again. And to me, I was like, hey, man, this is the same analysis I used to front run the pivot back to reflation in September. Now it's telling me to to pivot out of reflation and into something more defensive. And, you know, the same analysis I show with the S&P 500, it's the same with most commodities and everything else. You know, commodities want Growth, demand growth. They want grow. You know, they want to be in Goldilocks locks of inflation. They can. You, you can get paid in energy and, and 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 food and inflation, but your volatility on that those exposures is going to be much higher. And so, okay, so knowing that, so I
1: that- want to zero in on this. This is like yeah. this is less of all. Like I get wh- where you're at because we always, again, internally we have these conversations and we're like, totally. I see this pattern, mm-hmm. and then we're like, well, let's just let's just go ahead and put that into the system. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like at some point, you've you've had two occasions in which you front, front ran the system. Mm-hmm. At some well, point, now, you got to be like, I'm gonna front front, I'm gonna try I'm gonna create a system this around it. Right?
4: Yeah, it's not just front running the system because I feel like it. It's front running the system with this in mind.
1: No, but, but this is this is yeah. my point. You have your your eyeballs are telling you some stuff, mm-hmm. and now you've discovered a pattern from your intuition. The question yeah. is, are you gonna then quantify that? and embed it into the system. And, and is that the evolution of all quantitative models at the end of the day? Absolutely. Uh, or, or is it always going to be like your intuition? Because, m- you know, maybe there's something that you, with, with regard to these two phase shifts that you front ran, that aren't, they don't happen often enough for you to create a, a model. But anyway.
4: No, no. I, you're, I just find it's it a very interesting question. thing. I do believe there's a model to be created now that you asked that question. So that's something... We'll get mm-hmm. we we'll get some more we'll do some work on that. Um, I do believe so the whole point, as you guys know with quantitative analysis, you gotta create time series that way you can back test it and, and actually forecast it and and ultimately, you know, use it in real time. And so right now I'm I'm effectively using something that is not time series based, even though it's quantitative. It's quantitative based on on the on the back tests and all the, the learnings and understandings to so, hey, look, when the market does go from d- defensive to pro cyclical or pro cyclical defensive. It's swiping, it's swapping on that that you're know, going from left to right on that on that big table we we're talking about, and so to me, seeing that that change in early November was saying, hey, look, I don't want to stick around waiting on this 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 actual pivot, because there's a lot of stuff that can happen in this month in particular, particularly you know, and, and I said this when it, when it happened, the the June CPI report was one of the biggest catalysts of the year, or not the June CPI report, sorry, idiot, uh, the October CPI report. Not only did the October CPI report sort of put the Fed on a path to accelerating tapering and acknowledging that it has to tighten next year, but it also, in my opinion, is taking out the wind of the sales with respect to the Biden administration's agenda. I don't think they're going to be able to get 170 or 1.75 trillion past the Senate. You know, that could be one trillion. If that's one trillion, what's what are we talking about in fiscal drag terms next year? We could be talking about a recession next year. I, I don't think that's the base case scenario, but I don't. I don't think anybody's talking about that in terms of. You know what I see in the bond market and the yield curve, and what I see on Fintwit, everybody's levered long inflation. I'm like, you know, that's a weird, that's a weird setup to me.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's not, it's not matching expectations.
4: Doesn't not matter if it's a billion or a trillion. And billion. I'm going to side with the bond market every time. <laughs> not, not Fintwit, Trust me.
3: <laughs> whoa, whoa, So, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so Tell me a little bit about your. You keep using the word backtest, so I'm, I'm curious what you mean by that because it doesn't seem to be. Um, exactly the same as the way we typically think about back tests. I think it's you're identifying a certain condition. So whatever, you know, three-month uh, skew is X. When three-month skew has been X previously, the forward return over the next three months or six months or whatever has been on average Y. Is that is that generally how you're approaching it?
4: Uh, the, no, no, it's, it's actually, uh, can you see my screen? Oh, no,
1: no, no sorry. Right. There, there you we
4: go. There we go. So no, it's uh what we're trying to do is, is we're back testing observations in the regime on, on, a, on a time series basis. And so what we're looking at is annualized expected return for the 71 observations over the last 25 years when the S&P 500 is in Goldilocks, when the economy is in Goldilocks, this is the annualized expected return based on those 71 observations over the last 25 years so this okay, is so using the ensemble a of yeah
3: you're using an ensemble of all of your different um indicators mm-hmm. so you've got that ensemble you can identify where that's the, the regime that that ensemble was signaling that you were in mm-hmm. you know back through time yep and then you can you can just sort of pull out those months where the regime was or was was in that state and what was the average return when the regime was in that state back over the past 25 years? That's the thing. Yeah.
4: Yeah. That's exactly and, it's, uh,
3: and it's uh and it's a, it's either in that regime or it isn't right. It's mm-hmm. so like yeah. a probability of that being in that regime. It's like it, it is in that regime or it isn't.
4: Yeah, exactly. And this is the, so the, to address that point, that's the sub back test. So each, each back. So the overall back test is obviously the, the whole sample, but then we have different categories of back tests. So, Hey, what does it mean when growth's slowing very quickly, where we call it minus two sigma growth delta? So the size of the delta on the deceleration is, is, is a minus two sigma relative to the trailing three-year sample of, of deltas. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you typically get a, a bigger drawdown in stocks when, when growth is slowing ex- at an accelerated pace. Um, and inflation or deflation, those are the when growth is decelerating. Or something like this, We you know, growth's accelerating pretty rapidly you know a plus or 1 sigma or plus 2 sigma if you're in in a goldilocks or inflation you typically get a more positive market response and right. so you know we're categorizing all those different back tests so we you know in terms of you know understanding because it's all just historical data right we're just um you know it, 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 we're relating the historical data to the to to the to the price changes in the markets and then ultimately you know creating the distributive statistics associated with that um so we can understand and, and the goal of that entire process is to create this this table so understand how this how asset markets generally behave and then the secondary goal the real goal is to make money right and to help help me you know help myself make money help my help the folks who subscribe to our process make money and so we use all that secondary information alongside the primary back tests to effectively create these scatter plots the visualization of it all say hey if I think we're transitioning from this to this you don't want to be long things that only work in this but not might not work in this you know what I mean you want to be long things that work in both and so that that's that's how we really help investors, you know, understand these regime pivots. We started the show by saying, "Hey, we could potentially be in a market regime, you know, transition."
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Our our bread and butter is is helping investors a understand what the current regime is, and b how what how to position for that change.
3: How do you can you um just flesh out what you mean by covariance ranking?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. Go back to uh, let's go back to the slide. So this is uh, You see so, that,
1: Mike? You see? By yeah. the way, I just want to point something out. Mike always gives me shit for having too many slides in my deck. 131 uh, slides, Mike. 131 slides. I'm, I'm averaging around
4: 60. All right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> just see, yeah. that's that's an uh, that that's what you call the kitchen sink presentation, right there.
4: Yeah. I, so I do this. I do one of these decks every month. Uh, I don't know why in the hell I decided to do that to myself, <laughs> but <laughs> it's actually been good. It's it's it makes me. It forces me to interact with all the data more regularly. I, I agree.
1: I think Adam yeah. is a winner here, though. I think I've, see, yeah. I've seen on average like hundred hundred um, slide decks on coming out of Adam's so yeah. within a day. He'll come up with a hundred slides. Paren-
3: Parenthetically, dude, you know the number <laughs> of slides is really just how big do you want the fucking charts to be on this sp- on the page, right? Totally. You, you can put four charts of, on a page and take a hundred twenty slide presentation down to a thirty slide presentation. Very right? it's not goddamn. Uh,
1: is that sure. what you need to do to live with yourself, Fel?
4: Follow- <laughs> <laughs> hey, I was
2: following along great. I don't know what we're talking about
1: now. Can yeah. get uh, I, a, oh I, my I, God, Mike, Mike it's right. was it's super it's focused. It's your your yeah, riddling yeah. is like in full effect. Eh? Yeah. I'm yeah.
2: focused in. <laughs> I'm following I'm, the story. I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
1: We just totally threw off Mike's flow. Exactly. I, I just—I was trying to get some levity to the conversation, Mike. Just you no, know. No worries. Yeah, we were we were getting right. very nerdy. That's normally your job, by the way. And yeah, we get, followed back, so I Fucking know, get uh, going.
4: Watching us at five p.m. on a Friday, like man, this is boring stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no man, you we know, got great go, engagement. We got
1: amazing engagement. And nobody's asking any questions. Don't we, be shy. We, we, we love this. We love
2: nerding out. It's awesome. Uh, just yeah. loving it, and it's—it's uh, it. it's also. I'm assuming you, you, in in this case you're not registered uh individual who asked I'll I'll get everything through the registration process too. So there's there's some differences, but let, let's carry on. I want to get, get <laughs> yeah. in the meat.
4: So <laughs> yeah, i well, uh, uh, we try to the, the discussion too. Uh I want to answer my uh, Adam's question on covariance. So yeah um in the same way they were calculating the annual expected returns of percent positive ratios of volatility, we're also calculating the covariance with US equity beta in the regimes. And so taking the same time the time periods uh of those uh of each you know of each exposure that we're back to, we back to literally everything that, that ticks. And so, yep. for example, um, you're looking at, you know, bonds. This is the Bloomberg Barclays 25 year total return index. You know, the further, you, as I said earlier, the further you get into inflation, deflation, that co- inverse covariance picks up um, with you with, uh, you with the S&P 500. So, so it's um, beta
3: that, to spooze essentially.
4: Yeah, exactly. And so when you see that ranking on, the, on this these, these these scatter plots, we're taking that that that, you know, this table here where it's just some we're, we're trying to blend it all together to you know there's a proprietary process that i'm not saying it's perfect but i think it's it's pretty good in terms of blending all these back tests together and then we just rank them and so the, the ranking allows us to, to 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 calculate a mean value for them and the mean value allows us to plot them on the scatter plot and so we got a mean value for covariance volatility on the x-axis and a mean value for the expected return a percent positive ratio on the y-axis yeah i'm all
3: loving right. it so Help help me understand how you translate that scatter plot to a portfolio.
4: Mm-hmm. You don't need to
3: actually show me the portfolio. I know that's proprietary, yeah. but I'm just keen to know how that how that works at your end.
4: Yeah. So going back to the pie chart allocation, so the pie, the pie, the size of the slices of the pie correspond to the percentage the the, the probability of realizing the regime over the next three to six months, mostly the next three months. And so uh, if let's say I need, you know, just to fill up, you know, 50% of the portfolio with, with deflation exposures, for example. I'm going to go to the deflation back test and those scatter plots and go pick dots from the top left of the, the, the scatter plot, you know, the top so left. So which means,
3: dots do you pick and then how do you size them?
4: Yeah. For example. Uh, so for now, we, I mean, I've, I've, I've experimented and failed with, uh, with me variance in terms of sizing. So we, right now we're just, uh, uh, sizing them up equal weight equal weights. But so for example, in fixed income, you know, if I'm, you know, we're trying to, let's say we need to add fixed income dots in the, uh, in the pie chart. Well, let's go find things in fixed income that have a high, you know, reward score and a low risk score. So that's be short-term, you know, short-term treasury tips, MBS, you know, kind of a treasury belly or that's seven to ten years. This is AG, TLT, ADB. It's kind of the usual suspect, exactly what you would expect. It's obviously not things like you know, BDCS, high yield co- uh, convertible bonds, bank loans, emerging market debt, EM local currency. So this, these scatter plots help me fill out that, you know, that that slice of the pie. And so if I'm using QA exposures and I need to get, you know, to 50, for example, you know, that's going to be, you know, a little bit more. That's going to be 12, you know, 12 different slices or 12 different, you know, dots. So I've obviously got to run out of dots in this particular back test. So i got to go find them from other from other, from other asset classes that kind of mimic that exposure. Fixed income would be the closest one in, in terms of volatility. Okay, and all so, these
1: recommendations are non-levered. Yeah, no. Uh, just...
4: that, <laughs> this That's... I don't believe in leverage, man. That's how you blow yourself up. (laughs) Whoa. Okay. Well, we're gonna. We have how
1: much time we have left? We have okay. We have thirty-five minutes left to uh,
4: talk about that. What?
3: what Yeah. So, so I'm. I think I'm understanding. I mean, it's it's interesting to me that like EDV with a duration of like thirty is equally weighted in there with shy with a duration of like two. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then so I guess at the there's at least two steps to this there's the asset class allocation which is informed by the regime probabilities yeah. right and then so that you've got that sort of pie weighting and then within each of those asset classes you've got a list of um, a list of exposures that are expected to por- perform well in that regime and you just sort of take some, mix of those exposures and kind of equal weight them is, is yeah. kind of the general portfolio construction concept.
4: That is, that is correct. Yep. And it well, it's, it's not, it, there, there there's one more layer, this, there's, there's the slice of the pie that corresponds to the, what we expect to realize in the economy, because what we, what we, what we expect to realize in the economy, we believe we infer that the asset markets are going to try to price that in, in the market regime sense. And so the slice of the pie corresponds to that part of the process what actually, what asset classes I'm using to fill up the slice of the pie corresponds to the back test. Okay, so in inflation and deflation, I know I need more fixed income exposures because they have a higher expected value than equity and commodity exposures. However, if I'm in inflation or Goldilocks, that's the opposite is true. I want less bonds and more more risk assets. And so that that's that part of the process that's kind of not, not depicted here, but it's sort of automatically inferred.
3: Okay, and then how do you incorporate the beta?
4: What do you mean? I'm not sure.
3: Um, so I'm just thinking about you've got your chart, you've got all of these markets that do well in a. Um, you you want to be in fixed income, and and these are the markets that are, or or let's say you want to be in equities. Mm-hmm. How does the how does the beta ranking kick in in terms of the assets that you want to hold in the portfolio? I mean, I understand that it's sort of like um, above that line, but it seems like by just using that line, you're actually eliminating that covariance that or, or like market beta dimension entirely. So I'm just wondering kind of how that feeds into the process or how you think about that.
4: Yeah. So that, that's exactly the point. So, uh, if, uh, I don't have the reflation of Goldilocks scatter plots in here, um, do you mind? Let me share one more time.
1: Yeah. Uh, for. yeah.
4: I don't have the so looking at, um, equities in particular. So you want more beta in Goldilocks and, and, and reflation. So for example, if I'm in equities, if this was, you know, Goldilocks, for example, There'll be a lot of dots scattered up here, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, it'll be like high beta, the Qs, tech, you know, industrials, energy, financials. You actually want that that beta because it's going to give you that beta. That 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 volatility is actually a positive feature in that regime. You're getting more return, you know, for, for you know per unit of your of your risk. However, as you notice, all the highest dots in in these two risk off regimes and the regimes where growth is decelerating, all the highest dots are where you take the least amount of risk. And so that 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 to your, your point, Adam, I, that, that's a great question. It's like, you know, how do you know how much beta to take or where to get the beta from? It's a function of what regime you're in. When you're in inflation and deflation, you want to be congregated to the upper left. Generally, you want to be congregated to the upper left at, at most of the time. But the reality is there are no free lunches in markets. You're not always going to get a lot of dots in the upper left. Right. Typically, what you're going to see is, you know, dots up here and dots down here. Risk, you know, the risk tends to, of course, correlate with the reward. But there are, there, are, there are time. What this process allows investors to do, I think, at a really high level, is understand the anomalies in terms of the risk and reward you're taking, both to the upside, obviously for something like healthcare, but also to the downside for something like high beta.
3: Okay, so these plots are meant to be sort of a visual to help investors to understand that, by virtue of being in a deflationary regime, all of the assets that you want to be want to emphasize tend to be lower beta. Yeah, and if, yeah. if you. Really, so it's the beta is not really you're not really using that to select the assets so much as to illustrate that we want to be in low beta assets and, and we're so you know we're selecting these assets, um, yeah,
4: exactly. So. Now, if all like this circle that I'm circling here, if yep. this circle was transposed down here, that would not be true, right? Yeah, it, because it they, would had had they would have low it would have lower, reward, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, right you're getting, now, you're getting you yeah, you're, like you
1: said, I mean. Yeah. The sharp ratios of any one of these strategies, uh, any one of these securities change over time. Mm-hmm. Right now, the highest yeah. sharp ratio is in the top left here, right? Yeah, exactly. And that may not be the case. Even though you might be selecting more volatile asset classes, the return might be so much higher that the sharp ratio for that moment is expected to be higher. Yeah, you're absolutely And that's right. how you manage that. Yeah. You're spot
4: on. That's exactly it. Exactly, very interesting. Yeah. How often do no, the change transition? Mm-hmm. Say what?
3: how often do the regimes transition? Like, have you seen, um, you know, high confidence in one regime, you know, this month, and then it shifts next month to high confidence in like the polar opposite regime, or, um, does it tend to be more gradual? I'm just, I'm just curious about your experience with it.
4: Yeah. So on, I mean, quantitatively or or empirically, there's, there's two transitions on average per year of going from, uh, what I would consider to be risk off or risk on, which is Goldilocks and inflation, to a risk off regime, i.e. crossing that that, that, that Rubicon here. It's two of these a year. So you have to go from one of these two to one of these two because you could, it's very easy to manage if you go from one one or the other, very easy to manage if you go from one other. It's really just the amount of how much risk you're taking and the types of exposures you're exposed to. But when you go from you know one side of the chart to one side of the table to the other side of the table, you have to take different types of risk. And so on average per year, at least going back to the start of 1998, there's two of those to risk manage. But as you know, there's nothing average about financial markets. I think that's the scariest word in our business is average is mean. Um, as you see, this is a whole year of, of do nothing. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Now we're likely to have a whole year of the opposite, you know, do nothing. And so, How
1: dare you charge a fee? Yeah. <laughs>
4: How dare you? What yeah. am I paying can
3: you, you for? Can you go back to your macro indicators page? for a quick second i just want to have a look and then i'm how do you how do you select those macro indicators and then how do you um how do you weight them like do they all have the same yeah um predictive power i guess by by implication that you're assuming they all have sort of the same amount of predictive power in terms of their ability to inform your regime model
4: yeah it's not that i assume that they the, the assumption is not that they have the same amount of predictive power the assumption is that at any given time, any one of these markets could be the signal. So, for example, going into COVID crash last year when we went into, uh, you know, a big sharp de- deflation you know market regime, you know, it wasn't like the, the S&P 500 was like the last thing to break down. You know, what, what broke down, like, was like the Mexican peso started breaking down in January, and, you know, Brazilian real started breaking down. It's like so the, the assumption in the model is not that these are equal weighted but that you might get different signals from different markets at different points of time based on where, you know, the the various policy dynamics or whatever that could be also be impacting asset markets. So, you know, I've looked at this going into all the different, you know, deflation and inflation regimes that we've seen across time. And the reality is there's no consistency to what leads and what lags, And that, that is, that's a learning in and of itself. I think a lot of investors, I think one of the things we all do as investors is sort of, you know, and this is, again, this is all behavioral kind taught us this, we, we try to shortcut everything. So we say, oh, well, you know, credit spreads, right? You know, credit or credit spreads. Yeah. You, know, you look at credit spreads. A signal. You, that's a signal. It's that, over. That's the signal, yeah. you know? and, and we all agree to agree that credit spreads is a signal and it absolutely is. But it might not be in terms of the speed, in terms of, you know, helping you reorient your risk management. It might not be the signal that gets you out soon enough. It could be the Mexican peso two weeks before. You know what I mean? It could be something like that. So that's why that's why they're equal weighted. In terms of why this stuff's in there, there's no rhyme or reason other than that these are the most important asset markets in the world, or at least according to you know, Darius Dell's view. I right. mean, you know, he's talking to you, know, these are these are certainly the most liquid market exposures in the world and the most trafficked in market exposure in the world, maybe with the exception of something like you know, European triple Cs, um, it's less likely, or, you know, uh, crypto. You know, I, I would argue crypto's an important market indicator at this point now, but some people might not agree with that. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, um, you know, we're, we're, quote, there are 12 asset classes represented in this table, and so there's enough in there from the perspective of, you know, having a robust set of tools that, that gives you a signal ahead of time. Like, that's like what we're trying to do, the number one thing we're trying to do with all these, you know, these hundred slide presentations and all the presentations I put out every week is help investors not lose money. Like, I think, so, yeah, go ahead.
1: Sorry, because I, I want to pull on that behavioral string, and I want to pull on your client base. Because I'm sure you have a lot of data on the strategy. I'm curious whether you have a lot of data on your subscribers. Because what you are presenting right now is absolutely the way that everybody should be thinking about investing, which is you want to be adaptive. You You want to try to make money in good and bad markets. This whole idea of like you got to be investing in the S&P 500, Mr. Berkshire Hathaway. And that's the only thing you need to do. And just grit your teeth when it's shit and, and then, you know, celebrate when it's up never made any sense to me what you actually want to do is be very different from that single market and try to make money most years right mm-hmm. and while that seems rational and in any newsletter that's what people are offering yeah I would imagine that it's very different than the S&P whatever your P&L ends up being or whatever people you know I'm sure you get people have a, a variety of choices you're, you're showing them a map and they got to fucking travel their own path um it's gotta be very different than the status quo. And yeah. generally speaking, behavioral economics would tell you that not being part of a tribe is a bad thing. You're not gonna be able to stick to it. Yeah. So do you have any data on the turnover of subscribers based on tracking error?
4: No, we're we a seven month old firm, so we've only grown every
1: month, so. You gotta start, you gotta, you actually gotta start pulling that data and <laughs> yeah. analyze it later. But yeah. start pulling the data because I, I, I mean, this is what I've been preaching from day one of my career 15 years ago, mm-hmm. and it is it makes absolute sense. Theoretically, everybody buys in, and the moment that you have a big dispersion from their whatever market is is that, is their home their benchmark, bias, mm-hmm. it's when they quit. Yeah. So. You know, I don't think anybody, anybody here or you are promising that you're going to beat the S&P 500 every day, every month, every year. Okay. What you're promising or you're attempting to create is a, a better risk managed portfolio that does well over time, regardless of what the S&P does.
4: Well, beyond so, that, it's, it's, you, you, what you're trying to do is, you know, particularly for folks who are at or near retirement, mm-hmm. you're trying to eliminate downside capture in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. You know, like I I don't you know, this is an absolute return strategy. So your benchmark should not be the S&P 500 over time. You want to have S&P 500 like returns. Otherwise, you're not worth your shirt as a as an active manager. You're wasting your you're wasting your own time and resources. But the reality is you don't beat the market when it's going up. You know what I mean? Like that's 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 hard to do. You beat the market by not suffering a 20 to 30 percent drawdown. Because okay. your long bonds, your long cash, because a process like this, tells you to do that ahead of time. Exactly. So,
1: on, I think on, that's, on that point, that's a long process that is a tough thing to stick to. Because, yeah. on that
4: so, point, so where, where are
2: you average seeing average. the largest dispersion between sort of what you would observe? And I going to say the average investor, or you know, you're know, only six months old. The average FinTwitter? So yeah, your average FinTwitter. <laughs> um, as, as you're onboarding these new. Um, subscribers and uh, clients, where are they versus where should they be?
4: And what are the largest gaps that you're seeing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think this most recent couple of weeks, we're about as closely aligned as, as we have been throughout the entire process. I think because the markets were generally buoyant up until, you know, kind of you know, September, up until September, really. Investors felt the need to take more risk in their portfolio, generally speaking. Than kind of, I would the process would suggest you should be taking. And I think now, especially over the last couple of weeks and the pivots we've made, I think most investors are saying, "Hey, I, I think I, I kind of get the process now. You know, there's, it's telling me to take down risk." And let's be honest here: like whether or not you bought stocks in March of 2020, November of 2020, or April of this year, you've probably made a decent amount of money, right? Like, you, like it's it's this this concept of like. Oh my God, I need to be in it to win it after 130% move off the lows and the S P hundred. It's just, I think it's ridiculous. I don't think there's a lot of people out there that feel like they need to do that. I just think there's just so much narrative driven investing around inflation dynamics and, 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 and crypto having cycles and all this stuff that like there are people who have these massive positions on that refuse to give up the ghost until it's probably too late.
2: Amen. So that this keeps you in front of that. And then, on that, on that note, then, it's, it's sort of all those those asset classes that you would see in your portfolio that you're adding the reduction of risk, you're adding uh, more bonds back, or you're, you're adding sort of the risk-off assets more than, say, the typical investor or investment advisor at the moment who sort of stayed the course through thick and thin with their 60-40 and, and benefited from that probably fairly substantially over the certainly the Goldilocks period.
4: Yeah, yeah, and
2: and so now there's now there's the the potential for significantly more differentiation in in the approach that you're ascribing and the adaptation that you're you're ascribing.
4: Yeah, fifty percent of our uh, that pie chart I'm talking about, fifty six percent of that pie chart is in bonds, currencies, gold, and cash. Fifty six percent, right, right, and that's a very those are two very recent pivots. You know, most of the portfolios in you know high beta type, you know, commodity exposures heading into the beginning of the month or heading in the beginning of November. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, a very important pivot to start getting out of that stuff and rotating into more defensive exposures. Not to say we nailed or anything. I'm, that's not the point. That, oh, no, I, here,
2: and, but it's, it's a process. To stay, process right? so like, it will process change. It telling you
4: start doing something different. You know, yeah. even, yeah. even the, going back to Rodrigo's discussion, like even the leading edge of the process, like before the full process confirmed was telling me to start doing something different. And so having, you know, kind of this human experience that I've had over the last dozen plus years of doing this. It's like, Hey, maybe I don't, I don't want to wait for everyone else to have to sell their overweight inflation commodity story, narrative based investing story, you know, for positions. I said, it: there's a bubble in narratives and a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money in the next kind of six to nine months, in my opinion, as a function of their inability to change their mind on something like inflation.
2: And yeah, how much, uh, how much, um, how much time do you need for an asset class to to contribute? Like you mentioned Bitcoin as an example. Does that have enough time to have a, a data series that's uh, that can make a contribution to your models or how long do you need? I don't think there's a right answer
4: to that, but I mean, it's, it's got to be in there. Uh, the, I think the answer is it's got to be in there. I don't know if we have a good enough time series yet to see it because we haven't really seen it go through too many recessions and things like that. Right. I think, you know, uh, you typically need to see tightening, multiple tightening cycles, multiple economic cycles to have a real true back test. That's why I, I keep it at 25 years on a trailing basis because you, you're going to get a lot of that stuff in there. And so you're you're actually right, Mike. That's a great question. Like Bitcoin does not have that time series component to it. Moreover, it's a lot of the time series that it does have since 2009. It's just an adoption story. It's not a, yeah. it's not a macro thing. Yeah. It's an adoption story. I would argue, and we actually, we, we start our Bitcoin back test at the beginning of 2017, because I, I do believe that's kind of the year where it became a real asset class as opposed to an adoption right. story. So that's yeah. That's and when you look it, at that's what that, what what's doing.
1: you know, the, the narrative that Bitcoin is non correlated is true. A lot mm. of things are non correlated totally. until the shit hits a fan. And yeah. then there are those things that are very correlated and massive drawdowns, and there are those things that are negatively correlated. And now, you know, right, like it has Bitcoin ever been a massive protector during a massive deflationary cycle. No, I don't think we've seen any of that. We've no. seen bonds continue to do that. We've seen gold do that once in a while. Yep. Bitcoin continues to go down drastically when liquidity dries up. So mm-hmm. it's, it's I think we need to think about the the diversification benefit of Bitcoin most of the time, but you have to recognize that it will suffer in a growth shock.
4: Yeah, of course. I don't, it's shocking to me that people don't acknowledge that because. Yeah, they don't. No, it's so yeah, not correlated,
1: yeah. right? Yeah. It, it makes
4: a ton of sense when we talk about this with stocks, right? Like stocks and credit, like, oh yeah, we have a growth shock to the downside. That's going to catalyze negative, you know, expected returns in the, in the equity market. But, you know, for whatever, and again, this goes back to the bubble of narratives. Like Bitcoin is a narrative driven investment vehicle and it's increasingly less a narrative driven investment vehicle as more people like us adopt the asset class and, and start to, you know, find ways to put it into a, uh, you know, balanced portfolio. But until that's a, a, you know, that process will be ongoing for the next decade. And until that process concludes, i.e. it's, a, it's just part of the, you know, investment universe that we're all kind of dealing with, you're going to have still a real big, you know, kind of narrative driven component of the asset class. And, and this is why a lot of people, you know, they buy the high of the, the Bitcoin chart and they're underwater for three and a half years. You know, that's happened a few times before in the last you know 12 years or so
1: mm-hmm. and, it's just and, so intuitive
4: and, yeah it's so
1: intuitive i mean like do people really fly to safety towards bitcoin when people you think within, about the, just a, just like this is the art side of investing right like within the you, crypto you, ecosystem you, you, yeah with yeah. What, what's that within the crypto ecosystem within, maybe within, yeah. prior, prior we'll go to to bitcoin versus home. other yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, but what's interesting is this is the art versus the science, right? You don't have data, enough data to know what Bitcoin is going to do over many cycles. Totally. But if you just intuit, okay, what, is, like, just your, what does your gut tell you about f- flight to safety in liquidity events? That continues to be mm-hmm. the U.S. dollar, continues to be sovereign bonds. Maybe there will be a shift between U.S. dollar not being the flight to safety and treasuries and sovereign bonds, German boons, Canadian uh, sovereign bonds not being flight to safety. For now, that continues to be the case. Right, Bitcoin continues to be a hundred-ball strategy that will absolutely make you money in a in a positive growth shock environment. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not so sure it's going to do that on the defensive side. I mean,
2: as Bitcoin evolves over the next the next 15 years of its life, it may evolve into an actual Mm -hmm. currency-like instrument, that digital
1: gold that everybody wants to. It's
2: potentially that that's what it could do, and it could develop you know uh, markets around it. But at the moment, it's not that. I think you have to be Open-minded to that. This is one of the reasons I asked about how long do you need. And any new asset class presents some interesting contemplation with respect to that. Well, um,
1: didn't a new NFT ETF just launch? Yeah. What, what quadrant are we putting that one in? Oh yeah. my god!
4: Yeah, that, that's the kind of stuff you see at the top, though, right? I, yeah. I, mean, I don't. I don't make big market prognostications like, oh, stock market's going to crash. Look at margin debt. I mean, there's a, that stuff's a dime a dozen you know, in our industry. But yeah. I mean, that's. You want to talk about like bubble activity, like that's the kind of stuff you look for, and, and that's the stuff, the mm-hmm. kind of stuff that they write chapters in books around, you know, five, ten years later. And so, okay. if you want to talk about, and I got one last slide to show you guys. I, don't know, I hate, you know, I hate, hey, I hate that I dominated the conversation with the slide. Oh no,
2: you should, man. It's it's the whole little point. Little. Yeah, uh, it's that's why you're here. Yeah,
4: By the here way, is. you can
1: end this whenever you want, and you can keep. Yeah, we'll wrap. We'll wrap up for this. Yeah.
4: So this uh, here we go, slide seventy-eight sure people have seen this chart before because it's part of the bear porn packet, um, you know. But anyway, so this this chart shows the uh, S&P 500 real earnings yield as deflated by the headline CPI, the blue line. And there, six times this has gone negative in the past, I don't know, 50 you know, plus years.
1: Sorry, can you describe this as a lot happening here?
4: Sorry, this is the uh, the blue line is the S&P 500's earning yield, the real earnings yield deflated by realized headline CPI. So the, the earnings yield minus headline CPI, the blue line. Okay. Yep. Whenever the earnings yield of the stock market, so it's an inverse way of looking at the, the price earnings multiple. Um, so, whenever the earnings yield, so it's another way of looking at valuation, whenever the market has been this expensive as a function relative to inflation, this expensive yep. relative to inflation, we've seen massive drawdowns. You know, the minimum drawdown is, is, is 15% in this in this back test. It's and a six, out of, it's six out of six back tests, and it's a minimum drawdown of six, 60, 15%. There's, there's a couple 50 percenters in there or three 50 percenters in there. And so to me, like this is the all time low in this real earnings yield. You know, so, you know like this is, again, this is like
1: the 15th like bearish chart I seen yeah. this week. It's and so crazy.
4: go go back to where we started the conversation. Asset markets are very buoyant. We're assets in particular. The Fed is on a what it's increasingly feels like a train track towards mm-hmm. tightening policy, even though we're heading into this. That's that's exactly how you get I a big big market. How now. did
1: this in 2018 as well, right?
4: Yeah, exactly. Well, the,
2: and yeah. it brings up the, the 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 idea that it you know a lot of this these large corrections are caused by policy mistakes, where the misinterpretation of the data cr- creates a situation.
4: I think they're mostly caused by policy mistakes. Yeah. I mean, or, or like you know guns going off somewhere, but like yeah, yeah. policy mistakes is it? Yeah, totally. They're, they're hard these- to model. Their framework bad. is is and now yeah, I've had a full glass of wine now. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> yeah, this is what it starts getting, getting in. interesting. Is, we all make honestly, all the mistakes and we go this yes, is where it's it gets designed good. to have it is a it is a it is is a deliberate policy mistake. Their framework by saying, Hey, we're only targeting you know this kind of maximum inclusive employment shortfall objective, and we're gonna actually change our inflation policy as a function or or, or, or to facilitate getting to that objective. Is a is a deliberate policy mistake. We're gonna we're, they're effectively trying to ignore impulses in the economy in real time to say we're going to ignore that to get us back to the promised land. That is, you know, some some people would argue if you just got a job and you hadn't been able to get a job, that's a that's a policy a success. But if you're talking about you know asset markets, that's probably a policy error because you're going to be behind the curve. Amazing.
1: Yeah, I think the uh, when I look at the the when I look at a pure quant model, a pure trend model. I look at their worst possible drawdowns that has come at the hands of policy changes that were completely unexpected like the mm-hmm. 1994 bond massacre oh, yeah. had to do with greenspan completely unexpectedly just rising raising rates in in a manner that we hadn't seen in decades right yeah. and he didn't project he didn't explain it to the market he just went ahead and did it we, mm-hmm. saw it again in we saw it again in tw- two thousand and four. We saw it again in two thousand and six. We saw it in twenty eighteen twice when Pell came into power, right? We saw it in January, and then yeah. we saw it in August. Yeah. Right? Every single time, and then they have to about face within months. Yeah. Right. Like it's, I think that's what's a- different
3: though about the the current Fed that they've demonstrated a capacity to about face very quickly, and when yeah. they do, the policies that they enact are orders of magnitude larger than what the market is prepared for and what we've ever seen before. Right. And that trajectory keeps accelerating. Right. I mean, they rolled out the same set of tools that they used in the 2008 crisis. It, you know, it took them 18 months to roll all those out in 2008 nine took them about, you know, 18 days to roll it out in uh, 2020. Right. So this is what I mean by this sort of reflexive nature of this market. Right. I mean, You've got a massive amount of speculative fervor, narrative fervor to your point, Darius. Um, you've got negative dealer gamma across all the major indices at the moment. Like mm-hmm. we are primed to be in a, in a critical state. So a, sh- a minor shock can nudge the market in one direction or another to a much larger magnitude than people are used to. And the government's, And the Fed's reaction function is, you know, if you're using the recent past as a guide, a massive unknown in both directions, right? So, you know, these are the reflective dynamics that investors need to navigate here. And it's, I think this makes this market one of the hardest markets to navigate that we've ever seen from a risk management standpoint. So, yeah. you know, and what's great about this, Darius, and I, you know, to Rodrigo's point too, all of us on this call are positioned for dispersion against the common indices at the moment, right? Certainly our portfolios are as well. That's very exciting. I mean, we are going to experience dispersion in one direction or another, right? But that is how you Differentiate in this business, and this is how you demonstrate the long-term value that you're, you know, going to bring to uh, to investors. So, you know, these are pretty exciting times. I really like the framework you have delineated. It's amazing to observe the amount of commonality actually from an ensemble standpoint in terms of like the ensemble of signals that you're using, the humility of using all of them. Um, you know, we don't quite use them all in equal weight, but just you know, acknowledging the error term in the strength of any one signal to signal the market state that you're in at any given time and the market positioning that we're beginning to observe in our models and your models. Um, there's a lot of overlap there and, and it's, it's exciting where well, I'm looking yeah. forward to some dispersion yeah. for a change. That's
2: awesome. Well, That's it. awesome. Thank you. Let, let's let everybody know where they can find you and all that stuff. Let's remind everybody of, of all of that. Well, thank you very much for your time. I know that you yeah. were, you wanted to keep it a little shorter, but a uh, tough break. We wanted to jump into some other <laughs> stuff. No, no, this
4: is this was outstanding, man. I To be able to geek out with some fellow geeks, man, I, I really appreciate it, man. Um, we well, we'll so, yeah, sure to
2: have you back on, too. So oh, of course. Nice, yeah, no, no definitely. That. I appreciate it. I'd love great.
4: to. Um, Let so yeah. <laughs> Where can they find you, man? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I'm at uh, 42macro.com is our website. Come check us out there. Uh, I'm on Twitter at 42macro, D-D-A-L-E um uh, pretty pretty active i guess uh to some degree <laughs> thank right, you guys yeah. i appreciate it. this well, was a hell of a discussion no, I hope you guys uh, this is it. great Darius. Yeah. and uh, everybody <laughs> listening
1: don't state. forget don't yeah. forget to like to subscribe to share this podcast it's one one of my personal favorites uh, i can tell you right now um and uh you know follow darius on twitter follow adam on twitter at at gestalt u as in gestalt university the whole is than in some the of their parts gestalt at gestalt u mike you at what's yours? Yours is your uh, Mike, Mike 99. 99. Yeah. Mike Philbrick 99. I'm Rod Gordillo P at Twitter um and you can find us at investorsall.com so do um do follow and uh, we'll have Darius back. I love this. Maybe once a yeah. quarter we can, we can geek out on macro stuff and see what's going Absolutely,
4: on. Absolutely,
1: man. It'd be yeah. cool.
4: Fantastic. Yeah, love it. Love you go, right. right. Enjoy Appreciate the
1: weekend. cheers. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at Invest If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again